following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Grab your Bibles. Let's go to Jude. We're going to read the book of Jude. If you're not here last week, let me direct you a little bit. It's at the end of your Bible. If you know where Revelation is, just go back. Just take a little bit of a left. Not too strong of a left because you'll pass it. It's one chapter. There's not several chapters. It's one chapter. The book of Jude is 25 verses, and because of its brevity, we will be able to read the entire thing. So, uh, either follow along or listen along. I want you to catch the message of Jude. Here we go. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unannounced who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, and to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, 
be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, may all glory be to you, the only wise God. No one is like you, and your acts are wondrous. We are rebellious people and often turn to other things for our satisfaction besides you. We pray this morning that you would satisfy us with yourself. We humbly come to you asking to be fed, nurtured, and sustained. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Give us hearts of faith and repentance. We trust you, Lord, to do these things and to make us more like Jesus Christ this morning. It's in your holy, awesome name. Amen. So we left um, this this book last week on verse 16 is where we stopped. Kind of a cliffhanger, uh, an unseemly or really kind of an uncomfortable place to stop. Um, But because we're trying to do something, we're trying to get the whole book of Judah in these two Sundays, um, it was the choice that I made because I think it's a logical stopping point. Um, But today we're going to turn and see the rest of the book, 17 through 25. I'm going to give you a, a brief overview of what we're trying to do here in the book of Jude. First of all, we are trying to get the whole thing, and remember, going back to last Sunday, we are trying to understand the message of Jude. We want to make sure that when we read this, we understand what Jude is saying, not just catch some interesting facts along the way. This is not an encyclopedia of information. Much more, this is trying to tell us something very specific. Maybe many specifics, but at the very least, it is trying to communicate something. And we are the audience as well. He had an original group of readers. This is Jude that wants the writing. The audience, we don't know exactly who they are, but possibly a Jewish audience of some sort, Christian believers that used to be Jews, something like that, it doesn't tell us. What it does tell us is that they are true believers. There's three ways that uh, he describes them. He calls them called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. We talked about last week, these are very strong theological terms of love and affection and electing love working at, at work here for the people that Jude is writing to. In other words, these are the true Christians that he's writing to. We don't know exactly where, but we know that these are the true Christians that he's addressing. Um, let's see here. So those are, the, those are the people who are reading, excuse me, the people that are writing, the people that are going to read this. And remember, this is not a book. This is a letter. So it reads just like a letter. There he's going to address some specific things. And we are going to not read it like we read Ruth, but rather like a letter, like we would read in any other letter. Um, of course, the difference here is it is a miraculous letter in the sense that it is inspired and God-breathed, and therefore it is authoritative for our life. So we get into this. Um, this is where it's from, for to, who, it's, who it's to. In verse 3, we get right away the purpose of the book, right? We talked about this last time. The purpose is he's appealing to his people to contend for the faith. Why? There's verse 4. Because certain people have snuck in. They have come into the flock unawares, and they are perverting or twisting the grace of God into sensuality. Don't think of sensuality as only sexuality, although that certainly is part of it. Sensuality is meaning anything that serves me and my pleasure and my happiness and getting me what I want. And basically, he is pointing out that these wolves have come in in sheep's clothing and are taking the grace of God and turning it for their own good. Not for the honor, glory, and grace of God, but rather for themselves. So, so we started, and then if you remember, verse 5 through 16 was all an elaboration on who these false teachers or these wolves are. 
I spent a lot of time explaining this, and I'll do a, if, if you weren't here, I'll give you a quick overview of it. He is going to put these people, the certain people, the false teachers, in a category of famously judged sinners who everyone would agree broke God's law and deserve exactly what they got. That's what 5 through 16 is all about, and he's making this point very strongly. These people play in the same pool with those who saw God's great acts of salvation in Egypt, and then they get out to the desert, and they disbelieve that he can take them into the land. And so because of their unbelief, what happens? They're destroyed in, the, in there. They never go to the Holy Land. They never make it. A whole generation dies. That's why they're in the, in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. So that's, that's the first set that he talks about. Then he talks about these angels who have come down and were part of, and, and upon their lusts came to the women or the daughters of men. If that's what Genesis 6 talks about. And they went past their positions that they were supposed to be in, that God gave them, and rather gave themselves over to lust and, and fulfilled it that way. And because of that, they will also be destroyed. And the last one that everyone probably knows are the people from Sodom and Gomorrah who indulged in sexual immorality and chased after unnatural desires. So these are the people that he is putting them into that category. Like the, all the people we just talked about right there, the people, these, un, these, uh, these wolves in sheep's clothing are in that group. Then he's going to give us some specifics. He continues on and says, They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme demons. Now, being they have no business interacting with demons, the other ones we can understand a little bit, but we talked about this last week, uh, they blaspheme demons when Michael himself, the archangel, an uh, incredibly powerful celestial being, an angel, did not even dare to blaspheme or revile these demons. Rather, he said, if you remember we, we read, the Lord rebuke you. And these people are more than willing to jump in and revile demons, far going outside of where they're supposed to be at. He continues to add more and more layers of their sinful description, uh, but ends by telling his readers that in the end, these false teachers are headed for destruction. In fact, it says the Lord will come with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. That's kind of where we stopped. We kind of stopped there last week, left it there, and said, we'll come back. And now we're coming back. Judah's made it very clear that these people not only are ungodly, anti-God, but also that they, their end is destruction and judgment, and that's what they deserve. And they are among you. You don't even know it. They've snuck in, meaning you didn't know it. So they are wolves looking out for themselves, <coughs> excuse me, fulfilling their own appetites and desires, making themselves happy however they possibly can, and they're among you. So we stand back as readers. We've seen so far what has happened. Judah introduced himself. He's talked about who the readers are. Now he's talked about the purpose of the reading, of the, of the letter, excuse me. He's told them why he's writing. And then he's going to explain this, this big section on these people. And it, help us get a crystal clear look at who we're talking about, these famously judged sinners. And that's so far what he has told us. He only told the, so far, he hasn't told the readers to do anything, except one thing, I'm appealing to you to contend for the faith. Other than that, he hasn't told them to do anything. He's informed them, given them all kinds of information, helping them think correctly. By the way, that should give us a clue. We need to think correctly. It's not, the Christian life isn't always just about do, do, do. We have to think correctly and believe correctly. God was so gracious and kind to give us 66 books for us to hone that and understand Him better and understand ourselves better. 
This is for us to understand and to think about. You cannot be a lazy Christian. It's not right. That's sin. You are to show yourself approved, but to study, to know. You've got probably three or four Bibles at home. You have the opportunity. I'll get to that in a minute. So let me give you a little bit of a a flyover of the rest of our time, our little roadmap. Verses 17 through 19 will explain the appearance of the false teachers as not a surprise. This isn't something that should surprise us. 20 through 21, we'll see him exhort the true believers to tend to their own relationship with God, and they just sit, they can't just sit by and watch him identify, okay, now we know this happens. They need to do something about it. Verse 22 through 23, we'll see him explain how the readers should respond to those who have been affected by the false teachers, and then we'll end up at the end of 24 and 25 with him wrapping up and giving all glory to God alone. So that's the map, the table of contents, or whatever you want to call it. That's where we're going today. Verse 17, so look at your Bible, verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Right off the bat, he's going to identify his audience with the word that he started with beloved. Um, now, probably the, the most often times we've used or heard that term, we think like dearly beloved, we're gathered here today. We, we rarely use that term, but it's a theologically laden term. Again, we talked a lot about this last time, but again, he's bringing it up. This is an electing love showing his choice on these people to, in his grace, bring glory to himself through choosing these people to be his holy people. And that's what he says, beloved, I am talking to you today. So he's calling back. We've already seen it again in verse 1, and if you hold on, you're going to see it again throughout the rest of the book. But we've already seen this and refers to them as beloved, again, genuine believers in Jesus Christ. He's moving now from a denunciation of these, uh, these wolves, these false teachers, to this exhortation to the faithful people who are following Jesus Christ and are trying to know Him. In other words, he's, he's done with his attack on these wolves, and now he's going to move to teaching and encouraging and telling the people what they ought to do as they respond to this knowledge and how they should contend for the faith. What does that mean? That's his whole, he's trying to turn from that, and now he's doing this. First thing he's doing now, Jude says, before I tell you to do anything, I want you to consider something. Beloved, you need to remember that this was expected. And in fact, it was even predicted, these false teachers. Take a look. Remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Judas pointing back to the teachings of Jesus Christ, delivered to the apostles and then delivered to the church. Further confirmation again, we talked about this last week, of the authority of, of, of the apostles. This was handed because of the teaching of Jesus Christ to his holy apostles. He is using this again to remind us there is apostolic authority, and there is a reason why we have connected that with Jesus Christ, because Jesus did that directly. And again, this is, again, confirmation of the importance of apostolic authority. And the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. So the predictions of the, Lord, of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's laden with all kinds of stuff there. But again, pick out a couple things. One, understand that this is passed down from Jesus Christ to the apostles to His church. But the second thing is, I want you to see, is that it's the faith that was once delivered to the saints that we saw at the beginning, which was his purpose from the beginning. So Jude is showing, and he's starting to weave even his purpose statement, contending for that faith, 
that's been handed down. Not this of the dreamers that just do what they want to do because they, they are going to rely on their dreams and their own sensuality. Rather, pointing back to the true authority, Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, through His apostles. We should understand that and say, okay, that's, that's where our authority is. Not in what I think about it or I dream about it alone. None of those things. They must match only to this alone. This is our, our final authority. So, just remember these predictions. What do we want to see here? Let's, let's, let's read this again. Continue. Remember the predictions. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Now, this, if, you see, if you look in your English Bible, you'll see quotations, right? This is a quote, right? They said to you, in the last times. Did you see those quotations? Can someone tell me, does anybody have an idea where this is quoted from? I'm glad no one's raising their hand because it's not a direct quote. This is not a direct quotation from anything. So is that okay? <laughs> he looks like he made it a quotation. In our Bible, there's English quotation marks around it. It must have been quoted from somebody. Judah's taking the liberty to write in a way where he is summing up different quotations throughout New Testament Scripture. From what Jesus says, from what the apostles say, and I'm, in the first, first half in the, in, the, in the first service, I read through all of these. For time, I realize I better be slow down. I'm going to give you some references if you'd like to look. But these are all pointing back to the same thing. Paul says it in Acts 20, 29 through 30. He also says it in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. He also says in 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 5. And again, you don't need to write these down and go crazy about them. All I want you to understand is that these are a summing up of all the things that we already understand the writers to be saying about him. There will be scoffers who come, and they are going to be like this. Jesus says it back in Matthew. He says, there will be sheep in wolves' clothing among you. It's not a new concept. Judas saying, I'm not making this stuff up. Jesus and his apostles said that this would happen. There is one that I think we need to stop at, though. One of the quotations that seems awfully much, very much like this. 2 Peter 3, 2 through 3. Let me read this one for you. I want you to listen and look at it against what we just read. Verse 2 says, That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following, following their own sinful desires. <laughs> Anyone notice the uncanniness of how much that looks just like what Jude just said? Like almost like it could be a quotation. It looks very similar to this. The, the passage, in fact, this is a huge deal for scholars and how they, who quoted who. Either they're coming from maybe perhaps like a, a common tradition that's happening, some sort of you know, sermon that everyone knew about, or the other two realistic options are that Jude is quoting Peter or Peter is quoting from Jude. We're not exactly sure, and I want you to know, first of all, that that's not what we're supposed to worry about. <laughs> that's not what we're concerned with. I'm not going to speak the rest of the morning about, was it Jude who quoted Peter or Peter who quoted Jude? They're both writing Scripture, and they've both used this as important data, important truth for people to understand that there is something going on here, a much larger picture than specifically, well, did you do this or you did that? That's not important here. It is answerable. We can understand how and we work it through. And again, I read commentaries and over and over and over, these guys fight about who did this or who was the original reader and who was the original. A lot of the big problems come back to those that just don't believe that it's actually scriptural. 
So if we believe that this is true, if we trust that these, this product called the Bible is what he says it is, is God-breathed, is inspired, then we need to focus on the intent of the, of the writer specifically. Feel free to come talk about it afterwards, and we can talk about that. But again, what I want you to see here, much more importantly, that he is doing something that is not out of the ordinary. But again, the product is a work of literature that is God-breathed or inspired. It wasn't like the, list, the, the clouds opened up and the, this shiny black Bible with leather bound came down all at one time with beams of light, light coming out of it and gold filigree holy Bible. That's not the way we got Scripture. These, these different authors, our shepherds, our um, leaders, our prophets, our kings, um, are, are, are traveling ministers writing this. They have personalities. They have their own experiences in life. And so they're going to write with a certain personality. And that's okay and good, actually. God uses that in His process to tell truth and reveal His truth to His people. And so we shouldn't see this as a problem that they quoted a different book. Rather, we should see it as part of his process to do what he wants to do, again, ending with the God-breathed, inspired word of God. And this is what, why it's important. So, there are answers for the academic questions, but I fear the most often what the driving motivation is, is curiosity or pride, <laughs> academic pride, trying to answer these questions. So, I, as, a, as a brother and pastor can say, don't get distracted by these things, but rather, let's get to the point. Um. Back to the text, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Again, like I said, this is a statement that kind of sums up the rest of what the New Testament says about these false teachers. As the end draws near, and again, we don't know how close we are to the end of time. We don't know when Jesus Christ will come back. We know He will. We don't know. There will be those who mock scoffers at the way that we live our lives. They will not live that way, and they will scoff at the fact that we believe that Jesus Christ is coming back, and so it should change my life today. Jesus says that we'll be people like this. So does Peter, and so does Jude. Remember what we said at the beginning. These people are those who, by their actions, deny our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. He furthers the description. They are people who cause divisions, worldly people, and to put the theological dagger into them, they are devoid of the Spirit. This is huge. Don't let it pass you. This is what Paul says is quintessential to understanding what a believer is. Look, if you know Romans 8, I'll just quote one verse. The long story short, the long, glorious, wonderful story short is in verse 9. says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. In other words, they're not believers. They're not Christians at all. They may have the form, they're wearing that clothing of sheep, but they're not. They're devoid of the Spirit. These are not just backsliding Christians who just need to be scolded and brought back into the flock. These are wolves, and they have never been true believers. They don't have the Spirit. So verse 17 through 19 make it pretty clear. This should be expected, and it was predicted. We're finally about to hear now, though, Jude addressed the believers about what they ought to do as they are in the situation. Verse 20, let's look at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Again, he addresses them as what? Beloved, 
he continues to say this. This is important. He's making a point. He's saying it over and over and over again, addressing them this way. He addresses them as beloved, and he says, now let me give you some action items. You've got to understand this. He's telling them specifically what they are to do in response to the false teachers. So the first question I'd like you to do, class, take a look, and I want you to tell me how many action items in 20 and 21 does he give us? Not 22. Anyone have an idea? Okay, four. Four. Okay, I saw a few of you. I know you're, I know you're shy. It's okay. Four. It looks like four, right? So at the first glance, it looks like we have building yourselves up, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord. Everyone see those? But just a moment. Uh, if, I'd like you to take a look for a minute and think about what we already know about Jude's style. And this is why we talked about this at the beginning. Remember those three terms that he called the believers? He called them called, he called them beloved, and he called them kept. And then he talks about may, uh, he says something like, mercy, peace, and love be to you. He uses sets of what? Three. So why do we have four here? Let's take a look. Let me ask you something. If you have, if you have an ESV Bible, this will be a little bit easier. Or if you have your pocket Greek New Testament, that's fine too if you want to break that out. That's fine. But if not, this will help you. Look for the INGs. Can anyone tell me the main imperative statement here? Keep. All the rest, you notice this, I'm not trying to get geeky on you necessarily, but let me, let me show you there's an important thing here. You have one governing main verb, imperative, keep yourselves in the love of God. The other three are all supporting. They're all participles. They're all showing how, by what means, do you keep yourselves in the love of God. So, again, it looks like four, but look even how the, the, the translators said it here. They say, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. If I may, allow me to just kind of give a little bit simpler reading so that we can understand here. Beloved, keep yourselves in love of God by doing the following things. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. These are three things. You see, he's continuing his stylistic pattern. Three things, the means by which Jude's readers can keep themselves in the love of God. The main thing that they are told to do. Now, you understand the structure, but the content. Whew. If I were to tell you and come up here to say one thing today and say, congregation, keep yourselves in the love of God. Walk away. We have a, we have a really big problem. This is controversial if you rip it out of context. This is controversial anyway, by the way, just to let you know. But this is controversial if you rip this out of context. <laughs> How can we possibly keep ourselves can we, sinful people, like we talked about, how can we keep ourselves in the love of God? What can we possibly do to keep ourselves in the love of God? Does our theology even allow this type of a statement to be made? Are we suggesting that we can sanctify ourselves? Is Jude saying something different than Paul and Peter and Jesus, by the way? Uh, I mean, I thought that, you know, it was in Christ alone, by faith alone, and all that stuff. Well, you're right. It is. I thought that it was, you know, God who works both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You're right. It is. How is it then that Jude can call his readers to keep themselves in the love of God? We are faced with one of the great debates in Scripture for us to understand our position as believers, 
at the same time understanding how we are to act or walk as believers. It's a very difficult situation here for us because, again, it's seemingly at times that we're saying two different things. But may I say, the problem here is whenever we say one thing and we don't say the other thing. We are going to go off one end or the other. That's what we're prone to because we want to be defined and make sure it's done and we got it, we got this thing under control. It's not that easy. How is it that Jude can command us to keep ourselves in love of God? Well, let me say, it's probably the same thing that allows Paul in Philippians 2, verse 12, to tell the Philippians to work out their own salvation. Or Hebrews 4, where our author is saying something, if you can hold your original confidence to the end. Sounds very conditional, right? Or how about, maybe it sounds like the same thing that we see Jesus saying in John 15, 9 through 10, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. It's the same thing that Stacy pointed out in the book of James. I know, that was enjoyable, wasn't it? I'm so thankful. It's the same thing that Stacy pointed out in the book of James. James shows that works go along with the faith. It's, he says, is it, is, it, is it that faith that will produce works? Faith apart from works is dead, completely dead. Let's be clear, by the way. Your works, your works are not the effectual means of atonement or sanctification. I'll say it again. Your works and what you do as your obedience, as you love others, as you follow God, as you read your Bible and know and, 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 and obey Him, that is not the effectual means. It does not buy you salvation or sanctification. It can't because the Scripture says so. So don't be confused as to think somehow you're commanded to do this, so that must mean that this is the means by which God does it. If I do this, somehow it allows me to get into heaven or it keeps me in His love somehow, and that's the means. Scripture never says this, so we cannot say this. You cannot pay the price that is owed for your sins. No matter what you do, you cannot satisfy the wrath of a holy God. Apart from Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, you can do nothing to gain your salvation. Utter trust in Him alone, all the eggs in one basket, as Stacy talked about, as we are careening down the track to go off the edge of there, Christ and Christ alone to catch us. That's it. And if this is the faith that God has given to you, there will be fruit. There will be works. There will be a desire to trust and obey and to keep yourselves in the love of God. This command will make sense to you. It is very difficult for any human to explain this great phenomenon of God's grace and man's obedience. But again, it's because we know that the only, only way we can have confidence is in the fact that He says that He will keep us, and we'll get to that. The true believer knows that all His building and praying and waiting, the things that Judas said right here, were never the thing that gained their salvation, nor were they the thing that somehow kept God happy along the way. It's not that. He knows that these things are rather the joyful duties of an, a believer fortunate enough to find himself called to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And so our grateful and humble response is obedience. All the while understanding that He is the one who is keeping us. I will not be able to perfectly explain this to you. Um, and I don't think anyone in here will be able to. This is partly what it means to come back to trust Him in faith alone. He says both of these things. And we are to trust in Him alone. 
not our works, but He commands us to do these things. And so, believer, how are you then to keep yourself in the love of God? Well, Jude says three things. Building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. How do we do this? How do we build ourselves up in most holy faith? What is the most holy faith? He talked about at the beginning. When I talked about that term, not just trusting, what is the most holy faith that he's talking about? We're talking about the tradition of the teaching of Jesus Christ and his apostles. The faith that was handed down to you, the gospel, and Jesus Christ's understanding and interpretation of all the Old Testament. And so, you want to build yourself up in the knowledge, you know, excuse me, in build yourself up with your most holy faith. How are you going to do that? May I suggest that you read the Old and the New Testament, which speak to him, which tell you the truth about who he is and, by the way, who you are, and it will build you up. We know the power of the Holy Word of Scripture, and yet I'm the first to say it. Neglecting it is so easy. So may I suggest that he is showing us, hey, read your Bible <laughs> and pray every day. Oh, that's the next one. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not something magical or mystical. It's not as though we are going to do an out-of-body experience and pray in the Spirit. Paul, actually, if we go back to Ephesians uh, 6.18, he says this, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. It's a normal way for him to speak about how we pray. It's a good thing. It's, a, it's, it's the designation of praying in the Holy Spirit, then, is for two reasons. Because, again, we understand what it means. Paul's using it the same way. There's two reasons that Jew would use it here. First is to help them understand their utter dependence on God alone. Even in your obedience, you must trust and be only in Him and trust and put your faith and your abilities all on Him. He is the one you're praying in the Holy Spirit. The second thing is, think about what He just said about those false teachers in the previous verse. Devoid of the Spirit. Unbelievers, false teachers, will do so devoid of the Spirit, without the Spirit. Believers are praying in the Spirit, and that's the way that we operate. We have nothing else if not that, because He has done that work in us alone. All right, so the first thing we talked about was uh, building yourselves up in most holy faith. Second, praying in the Holy Spirit. But the third thing he says, uh, how do we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ? Good question. Jude is pointing us here to something longer term. He is saying, as we do this, you need to wait for the mercy of our Lord in His coming. He will come again. Expect it. Know it will come. And again, waiting for that, this type of a perspective causes the believer to live a life that is not overly concerned about the people in the world around him, but far more concerned with the relationship with the one who will come again, the who will give us mercy, and it will lead to eternal life. And so as we wait, it means that our life looks like one that is waiting for something to come, like that there will be one who makes all wrongs right again, like he promises this, I can't see it around me at all, but I'm going to trust Him instead of what I see in front of me, walking by faith, not by sight. And so these are the ways that Jude points out for us to keep ourselves in the love of God. So, ultimately, again, more concerned about this, the relationship with Him rather than those around. Verses 20 and 21 outline the, how the believers are to respond attending to their own relationship with God. Now, Jude wants to take for a minute and point us around. And he thinks it's important now to how do we treat others that have been affected by these false teachers. And may I step off the path for a minute 
This hit me on Wednesday, and I was just blown away. Jude's approach here is completely consistent with Jesus' approach to the question, what's the greatest commandment? Love God, love others, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God by all your heart, soul, and mind. What's the second like unto it? Love your neighbor as yourself. What does Jude say? The first thing you should be most concerned with in what you're doing, the first thing is your relationship with God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep that primary. Know Him, love Him, know about Him, praying, waiting for Him to come, live like He is the King. And the second thing he says to do over here, we're going to go in a minute, is he says, now serve others. Love them. Judas, he doesn't say this, it's just like a, it's amazing how themes of Scripture go throughout Scripture, not just one place. Like I said, this is not an encyclopedia, but rather are showing us a divine author as well. So, ultimately, we're coming back to the fact that we're looking at our relationship with God first, and then secondly, as we relate to others. First response, keep yourselves in love of God. Second, take care of others. Uh, verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What is Jude talking about here? <laughs> uh, these people, we see there's a little bit here. Well, let me stop for a minute. The structure helps us to understand. They're looking at those who've been affected by these false teachers and these, and these uh, I almost call them foxes, these wolves. And they're going to say, how do you care for them? These people are doubting. They are perhaps on the edge of destruction. The text says, snatch them out of the fire. And it looks as though they are in need of mercy. These people are sinful people who have done the wrong things. Basically, you've got a group of people who are in need of love. So Jude, what does he tell them to do? Be merciful. But don't waste time. Some of them are in such dire straits, they need to be rescued. Save them by snatching them out of the fire. You need to be honest with people and say, hey, you're going the wrong way. You're going to destruction. You need to save them away from the fire. They may need to act more drastically and call someone out of the deep mess that they're into. And even more drastic is the last statement you see Jude says here. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. In other words, show mercy to these people, but be very, very careful. Do not get so close to these people who are, this could even be talking about the false teachers themselves. There's a group of people who have bought in, hook, line, and sinker to this theology. Do not get to the, close to, to the point that you are ready to be stained by the garment of the flesh. I know it's like a weird way to say it. The idea is, this is a warning. Be very careful as you love and show mercy and kindness. Do not get too close and do not participate in this. This will kill you. It will end in your destruction. Statement's a warning. The last statement, again, is a warning. Jude has warned them. He's informed them. He's instructed them, both what they should do for themselves and for others. And now we want to end the book, this letter, with a reminder of their position in Christ. Who are they? They are believers who belong to an incredible, supernatural being. Let me read verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He ends with a doxology. It's a saying of praise and honor and glory to God. It's, but it's more than just a doxology. In fact, it's tailor-made for these people. 
he not only gives all glory and honor to God, but he's making it so that they are learning also. And he's, again, creating the other end of the bookend. He's got the one end to begin and say, well, this is who you are. And he's also telling them who they are in the end as well. It's a saying. Uh, you're just not, not here just to bring honor and glory to God in this statement, but also teach and encourage. Think about it. In case you had any doubt about your ability to effectually keep yourself in the love of God, look at what he says. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless. Remember how Jude described the believers again at the beginning, called, loved, and what was the last thing? Kept. Same thing here, that Jesus is the one doing the keeping. Keep yourself in the love, but, love of God. But in case you are confused about who is working it out, or who's giving you the power to do so, or who will ultimately receive the glory for doing it, let me clarify. It's God and God alone. You have no right to get any glory from what He is doing in your life. It all points back to God and God alone. So He hands them over to the only one who can do the keeping, and that's how we end Jude in two weeks. Now, we still ask the question, so what? Today we're heavy on application anyway. Jude himself really applied what he's trying to tell you. He's trying to tell us at the beginning, he says, Keep yourself in the love of God. How? Thoughtfully reading Scripture, praying, waiting expectantly, living in a way that shows that you are waiting for Him to come. We know actually how to do that. John Sweeney and I had a discussion about this after last, last uh, service. He goes, yeah, really light on the application from Jude because he has to explain all this stuff. And the application is all stuff that you guys know. Now, this is new. You know this, to pray, to read His Word, to know Him, building yourself up in your holy faith and trusting Him, waiting expectantly for Him to come. None of this is new. But lastly, the second point of application, and we'll be done, is this. He ends with this doxology teaching us who we are in Him. And what He says at the end is to help us remember that we must rely on Him alone. We are not doing this ourselves, but He is the one keeping us. He is the one who has called, who has loved, and who keeps us in Jesus Christ forever. And so, what should we do? We should revel in that and trust Him fully. Like Caleb said, stop trying to take the nails off of the things that He's taken out of the cross and doing it yourself and allow Him to do it. You can't do it. So trust Him fully and obey Him in obedience, loving and knowing our Savior is far more worthy of a life lived been living a life for this world around us here today. Let's pray. God, thank you for your time to give us this time, I'm sorry, our time together. Thank you for your word teaches us. Um, we humbly ask that you would do your work in our hearts. Um, I ask that you would bless this congregation as they go forth, that we would think clearly about what it means to keep ourselves in the love of God as we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I thank you for your word. We ask that you continue to work in Jesus' name.